Welcome to the Career Growth Podcast, where we discuss how university students and graduates can break into the job market and develop their careers. Let's get started with your hosts, Lucy, Vinay, and Julia. Hello, and welcome back to the Career Growth Podcast. I am your host, Julia, along with my two loving co-hosts, Vinay and Lucy. Say hi, everyone. Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Uh, so today's a very special day for us because we have doctor, founder, CEO of Maddox Academy, uh, Johan Maluana, on our show. Woo-hoo. Hi. <laughs> yes, Johan. has a very impressive background. He graduated from Bart and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry before practicing as an obstetrician. He was very involved in a leadership positions throughout his education and professional career. And to name a few, he was a University of London Union Medical Students Officer. Deputy Chair for Education of the British Medical Association's Medical Students Committee. That's a bit of a mouthful. And he was also the elected chair of the BMA Junior Doctors Committee. Some of you may have seen him on TV. If all of that was not impressive enough, he was named by the Health Service Journal as one of the top 100 influential people in the NHS a few years ago. Welcome to our podcast, Johan, and it's great to have you join us. Thanks, Vinay. Thanks, everyone, for having me. This is a, a bit of an honour to be asked to do this. So this is, I look forward to the conversation. I'm sorry if I waffle. I tend to do that. So apologies in advance. We waffle too. It's cool. We love waffling, basically our middle name over here. Then you've, you've, met, your, you've met your ideal interviewee, right? Because I waffle like crazy. So. <laughs> and how was your weekend, Johan? I know that we're recording this on a Tuesday, but anything exciting? So I've got a six-year-old and a four-year-old, so basically my life is exciting. Every morning I get pummeled as they jump on my face and like kind of decide (laughs) to say that they want to do wrestling every morning, which is always slightly worrying. So yeah, so the weekend was very cool. So what about you guys? What did you guys do this past weekend? Well, Vinay and Lucy. (laughs) I'll go first. Packing, 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 packing. My whole house is a maze of boxes at the moment. So that's been good fun. I had my mother-in-law over and the co-founder of Capital Placement, Niam, was also over because my mother-in-law said she hasn't really had a chance to speak to Niam for a while. And so she was like, yeah, bring Niam over. We'll have dinner. And so he came over. We all had dinner and stuff. How's yours, Lucy? Yeah, it was good. It's Friday night. was quite drunk. Saturday, went to the Peak <laughs> District. So it was quite a combination, really. I went with my mom and we went for a nice walk. I had some nice food and the usual. So yeah, it was quite refreshing. Although I was still hungover on Monday, but I had a very nice, relaxing weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what about you, Julia? Yeah, so Cornwall was pretty fun. It was just nice to kind of get out away from everything. I didn't have great cell signal, which I actually enjoyed because I'm a little bit too addicted to my phone. So it was good to step away from it. Went to all the small little like places are in the UK. I I think everyone just kind of, when you're from the UK, kind of overthink all these little cities and stuff because it's just like another city but I love them. So I love going to these small little places and they have one, I don't even know if it's called, pronounced Fowey or Fowey, one of the two, but it has like a St. Catherine's castle there. And it was like this old thing that Henry VIII built and I loved it, absolutely loved it. And this was after the incident of dropping, hopefully would be my future mother-in-law's car keys down the elevator shaft. So yeah, yeah, that was fun. (laughs) But (laughs) she found the car keys after I dropped them, they, it was all good. I may still have a chance to, to marry her son. Who knows? <laughs> so, but yeah, it was really fun. It was nice to get away. I swam in the Atlantic Ocean. Update, it's really cold. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, that was Your pretty wife. much my weekend. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. And lots of drama. 
but kind of moving on a little bit. So thanks for, again, coming on, Johanna. So since I was just talking about my own holiday, is there any kind of special place you visited that you'd love to return to that maybe it's kind of influenced some of your decisions that you've ever made in your life, both either professional or personal? It's kind of your insights. So, I mean, I was born in Sri Lanka and we moved here when I was quite young, but I guess I still love going back home and and kind of traveling around Sri Lanka and kind of just and seeing family and stuff. So that's been a big influence. And, and also actually... Sri Lankans are, I mean, as anyone knows, Sri Lankans are quite focused on education. There's lots of Sri Lankan doctors in the world. And so basically, because of the work I do, a lot of what we're doing, we're now starting to think about what we do in Southeast Asia generally. And so, and Sri Lanka is a really good excuse for both professionally and personally to combine and keep traveling there and uh, doing stuff in there. So that's, I think, that's been my, my key kind of the place I love to go. But no, I mean, I I really enjoy traveling. So I've I've traveled extensively for both work and for like personal pleasure. And yeah, no, I think it's uh, the world is a is hopefully not going to get a lot bigger all of a sudden because of all of this stuff. But we can still get around the world a bit and have a good look around and kind of take advantage of it. So fantastic. Uh, No, Sri Lanka is an amazing place. I think I've been there probably three or four times in the last kind of five, six years. And it's just fantastic and I think last time was about two years ago for a friend's wedding and uh, it's just amazing. You're listening to the Career Growth Podcast. Do you have a question for one of our hosts? Send us an email at thecgpodcast at capital-placement.com. So since you have great knowledge in this industry and going into the fact that the healthcare industry is kind of a big umbrella term, can you break down what it means to be in the healthcare industry and the different avenues kind of in your own words? Sure. I mean, I think in healthcare, whichever country you're in, healthcare looks quite different, right? So it's still an industry that's still focused in lots of small bits with very little kind of globalized standardization in when we think about how, say, hospital systems work or health systems work. So every country does have a very unique profile of what the health industry looks like which is unlike, you know, say fintech or, you know, the financial industry or other industries, consulting, et cetera, et cetera, which have, you know, the same large organizations work across and you tend to get the same kind of organizational units as in. But in healthcare, it's interesting because you can go one of two lines predominantly into healthcare, right? You can be a healthcare worker, so someone who is a healthcare professional of some kind. So either a doctor, a nurse, a dentist, There's a myriad of healthcare fields that you can go into. So just in the doctor category, this is where you go to medical school, you become a qualified doctor, you get your medical degree. After that, there are 56 specialties in the UK, right? So 56 different career paths in the UK to be a different type of doctor. And that's everything from being a general practitioner, which is the biggest one in the UK, primary care, family medicine, whatever you call it, in wherever you are in the world, to things like, say, being a cardiologist or, you know, like, which is a heart doctor or being a gastroenterologist which looks after the medical aspect of the gut or being a surgeon, etc. So I was an obstetrician and gynecologist. So basically, my job was to look after women's health predominantly, but I predominantly was an obstetric. So I my job was to deliver babies and to look after women during pregnancy and in the post pregnancy periods, right? So I always love to tell the students I, I kind of mentored or I taught that obstetrics is the best bit of medicine because it's the only time you go and see a doctor for a positive reason, right? Every other reason why you go and see a doctor is always something bad. When most of the time, most of my patients came to see me, it was for a happy reason. And so that's a cool thing to do. 
So you've got your clinical aspect. So that that's what everyone thinks of in health. But then there's the whole area of actually the health industry, right? So that's the same as any other industry. So management or logistics or, or the structure of delivering health systems. And health in general is quite a politicized industry in any country because obviously being sick or being, you know, being like how you're going to get care, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it tends to be very politicized no matter what country you're in. And so there are a lot of elements to that. The other part of this is that often health workers or specifically and especially doctors tend to be quite on a pedestal in terms of within a society. So uh, particularly in Asian societies and other, but I'm, I think this is true everywhere, but I mean, I'm, I'm Sri Lankan, so I always see it in, in life. But I think in any country, most countries, doctors are put on a bit of a pedestal because obviously of what the, the job they do. And so that is a another element of being a clinician is often, you know, people are favorable towards healthcare workers, whether they're nurses or doctors. So I think that kind of gives you a sense of what health is about. So you can be a clinician, but you don't have to be a clinician to be in the health space. That's great. And you're also the founder of a health tech company, and some of our listeners may not fully understand kind of what your firm does. So can you kind of go into detail about what Medics Academy is? Sure. So Medics Academy, so I I mean, I spent much of my career in the kind of education of clinician space, right? So in 2008, I was appointed, as well as all the things that uh, Vinay said, I was appointed to the board of the General Medical Council. So there is a regulator of doctors in the UK. And in 2008, I was only a couple of years out of medical school and I got appointed. I was one of the 12 doctors appointed to the board of that. And predominantly for my experience in education. So I did a lot of work in education prior to that. And subsequent to that, I've spent most of my career in health education, whether it's on the policy side or whether it's on the delivery and logistics side. And it's been the kind of passion, driving passion of my career. It's like, how do you train clinicians for the future? How do you think about what does the future of clinical practice look like? And this is not a new problem, right? So this has only been kind of talked about very much in the last five years. But in the whole of my career, I've seen this fundamental issue, which is that we as a society, whichever country you're in, there is an increasing demand in healthcare, right? So no matter year on year, more and more healthcare is demanded of society, right? So how do you deliver that? And no matter what we think about technology, the reality, I always think back to the reality of someone being looked after and I genuinely don't believe in the next five years, you're going to get to a point where people are just generally happy to be looked after by a robot or by a piece of software or an avatar on a screen, right? They want to connect with other human beings. And the problem is that, and and the WHO identified this in recent years, that they predicted in 2018 that by 2030, we are going to need 18 million healthcare workers on the planet, more than we Mm -hmm. currently have, right? So we currently have 56 million on the planet. We need a further 18 million. We currently have about 1.3 million medical students on the planet right now. And so the fact is that whatever happens as a society, we have to work out how to deliver. We either have to reduce the demand on healthcare services, or we need to increase the capacity. So one of those two issues is important. And in the NHS in the UK, we spend about £115 billion a year on the NHS. And about 70% of that budget is spent on people, right? So whatever you do, people are at the core of healthcare, right? 
And the reality is you cannot deliver a healthcare system that is in that level of demand growth that has that much pressure on it without solving your underlying problem of how do you deliver the service and how do you train these people. And so knowing that about four years ago, five years ago, I kind of had had a very stark choice about what I was going to do with the rest of my career. I had a lots of opportunities. As Vinay said, I was like this very influential person in healthcare and all this kind of stuff. But actually, I realized that if I'm going to spend the rest of my career trying to solve a problem, I would like it to be a problem that genuinely needs solving, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I fundamentally believe is that we have to solve this problem of how do we deliver healthcare workers over the next decade, next generation. And so Medics Academy's core mission is to deliver healthcare professionals. And technology is simply a tool to achieve that mission, right? It is not our driving principle to do coding or whatever it is, AI or whatever. Our driving principle is do we solve this problem of how do we deliver healthcare for the planet, right? And so what we use is technology to leverage the ability to deliver scaled education across the globe. So how do we actually solve this problem, 18 million healthcare workers? And how do we leverage technology to deliver that on scale? And that's what Medics Academy effectively, it's driving mission and what we work towards. That's fantastic. And it's really insightful, obviously, for everyone that's listening as well, with like all the statistics, obviously what's kind of on the radar for the future of healthcare as well. I think it's always a very uncertain industry. So it's good to hear that, obviously, from such like an experienced professional. But yeah, just to follow up with that, Who are your current customers and who benefits from your products and services? So Medics Academy itself runs effectively a B2B2C model. So it's a bit of a hybrid model, mainly because healthcare is so complex anyway. So we basically run B2B2C. So effectively, that's business to business to consumer. And the reality is what we do is we build programs often at an institutional or national or sometimes pan-national, transnational level using technology to underpin it. So we'll build programs to deliver really interesting, innovative, scaled education. And that might be commissioned by or supported by a partner organization. So we recently signed our first UK medical school into Medics Academy, where we will effectively deliver a globalized master's programs across healthcare. And that will be accessible anywhere in the world. And people can access that qualification and content from anywhere and get a UK medical school qualification as a result, right? And so that is you know, a big step forward for us. And that first initial seed of the thing, which took many years to get to, but is now we're flourishing with that. And we're looking at signing up many different university partners, lots of NHS organizations and globally other organizations. So we're looking at industry partners in Southeast Asia, in the US, et cetera, et cetera. How do you grow all of this, this ecosystem together that really leverages and understands scaled education? So our primary link is into that B2B model. But we also identified that there is an important next step, which is the B2C thing. So helping those organizations get to their healthcare workers, their consumers of education. And we essentially traverse that entire spectrum of work. And so we will often work with a partner to build programs and products that effectively work for a use case and then work with the consumer at the end to leverage up the product for their specific needs. Interesting. And uh, firstly, congratulations on getting the university on board. We know it's not too far away from kind of what we do. I suppose both of us are in the 
education and training industry. And uh, it is a fairly a big achievement getting that first kind of university on board. So congrats on that. Just to kind of rewind a bit and before we go any further into your current career, I'd like to discuss a bit more about your medical career, as I'm sure we have many listeners who are interested in a career in medicine. So firstly, why did you decide to become a doctor? Other than being South Asian and I was like going to say, I'm, me, but... <laughs> I'm Sri Lankan. Basically, I was told by my mother that, or my dad actually, that uh, I need to do, pick a, jo- a job that was uh, that was going to actually pay a bill and basically not have me on his books for the rest of my life. So, uh, so there was a there was a clear pressure going into this, right? So, my, I have to say, my passion was always in history. I loved history, and so I, I always wanted to history and be a historian. And I remember turning up to my dad and saying right these are my a-level choices i think it was history geography and something else and he crossed them out and said you're never going to get into medical school with that rubbish here you go you're going to do biology chemistry maths go and do your a-levels and i was like okay right so i guess that's the uh, that's the past so you know, but I, I joke but i uh, it took me a while unlike most people i think people some people have like a deep driving passion for healthcare that's like from they they broke their leg when they're three and that's why they wanted to do it or something whereas I kind of came I I think my passion for healthcare came much later you know I find science useful I, I always found maths relatively easier when I was younger and so I was always interested in that thing the thing I found really hard was actually the arts I found the art subjects much harder to do and so I was really passionate about history generally because I loved the story arcs that you get with kind of with historical context and so I think I went into medicine probably with the wrong reasons actually when I first started because I was like okay well I've got to get a job and so doctor kind of beats everything else and you know being Sri Lankan you you know that the only thing that your mother's going to be more proud of that if you become is a, like a priest so you might as well I definitely didn't want to be a priest and so uh, basically uh, you know medicine was an acceptable second choice and so I basically went into medicine with that. And then I think when I was early on in medical school, I realized just what this meant. I was surrounded by these people that were so passionate about medicine and had clearly had this kind of burning desire. I mean, not all medical students go into it for that reason, but they were clearly passionate. And I have to say the subject is absolutely fascinating. I mean, genuinely, medicine is, and I don't think I realized this before I went into medical school, like, but the subject matter is genuinely fascinating. Like the stories you hear from people about what they've done to themselves or how they've got into this situation. So it's almost, I mean, it, it, voyeuristic suggests that there's a sexual element, but it's not voyeuristic. It's just like you're sitting there like genuinely most of my career, I sat there with my jaw open, like what? the hell are you talking about? Like, why did you do that? Right. And so, uh, so you do like fascinating insight into people and you learn about people, which is absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, I loved medicine. It was, I developed a passion in my kind of twenties or like late teens, early twenties for medicine as I learned more about it. And I think the thing I worked out in my life is that I never really hated any of my careers. I go into something, I learn about it, and then I become more interested in it as I go along. And so I certainly had that with medicine. And so that's how I ended up in medicine. And But then it just grew from there. I mean, I have to say, if anyone is ever thinking about going to medical school, I would definitely do it. I mean, doctors love moaning about how hard it is to be a doctor, but that's absolute rubbish, right? Being a doctor is like the best thing ever, especially if you do a job that is actually like, you know, there's lots of jobs you can do. But if you go into obstetrics, like I challenge you not to be genuinely excited by the concept of delivering babies, right? Because these babies come out, they look like squished, like lumps (laughs) of 
like crazy, covered in like muck and all this stuff. But they just are, I mean, it's so cool, right? The last baby I delivered, which I probably like, it was nearly a thousand babies I delivered before I moved careers into this. I mean, even the last baby I delivered was just as exciting as the first one I delivered, right? It was like, it genuinely is the coolest thing ever. So, so no, I think medicine is an incredible career. So I would definitely encourage anyone that ever thinks about going into medicine to do it. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, uh, Johan, did you mention that answer about your dad to, in your medical school interview? Uh, he crossed off both subjects. <laughs> the thing is, I am like weirdly honest in sometimes, like unhelpfully honest sometimes in some of the things I say. So I, I think in one of the interviews, I, and I got into the medical schools I got interviewed by, I, I think I did actually mention like this kind of, you know, a flippant way, why do you want to be a medical student or why do you want to come to medicine? And I kind of said something. But I think often like there is a standard answer when people say, why do you want to be a doctor? There's like a standard answer that everyone's meant to give, right? And everyone knows it, right? Which is it combines my love of science with my love of art or something because medicine is an art or people I love people and therefore I'm combining science with people and there's this like kind of textbook answering all of the application things about this right and I think the reality is if you've listened to 500 people basically giving you that answer if someone turns up and gives you a relatively thought out answer about why they're doing it and they're usually personable I mean I have to say I've sat in medical school interviews I interviewed for my own medical school and the thing is that you get person after person after person and whatever is memorable is often the thing that you remember oh yeah okay that person's memorable for this reason let's give them a chance sort of thing so I have to say I think in general, I don't think honesty is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just how you say it. If you just say, look, my dad basically forced me to be in this room, then yeah, I think I'd probably, I'd probably have lost it completely. But, um, but I, I, I think I wasn't necessarily fully the, the gave the answer, the textbook answer that you're meant to. So, Just one follow-up question to that. Obviously, as someone that's sat in on med school interviews, is there any kind of actionable tips that you'd like to give to anyone that's about to kind of go through that process? That's listening to this. I have to say, right, I mean, certainly in the UK, and I think in the US as well, getting into med school now is absolutely ridiculous compared to like 20 years ago when I got in, right? I say this all the time, right? I, I don't think I would get in if I basically applied now. And so it is hard to get into medical school. I mean, the hardest thing, I say this to all of our students, because I, I you know, obviously now teach a lot of students. I say this to a lot of the students and doctors I work with and train. The hardest thing about a career in medicine, the absolute hardest thing is getting into medical school right so once you get into mm -hmm. medical school you've literally done the hardest thing you have to do everything else is cruise control right like if you can get in you have to be an absolute idiot to basically get thrown out so because you've done that like the most complicated thing you possibly need to do so then it's just about application can you work hard enough to get through all the hurdles and also you're going to be basically examined for the rest of your life I mean you've got to assume you're going to be doing exams mm -hmm. until you're like 50 so just you know be clear that you're happy with that kind of way of approaching life right so if that's what you want to do then the hardest thing you have to ever do in medicine is that the first gate right the first gate get into medical school after that cruise control through life right because like when you qualify and I say this to the medical students when I used to teach them is that just remember no matter what anyone tells you the day you qualify from medical school and you can put doctor in front of your name, certainly if you're Sri Lankan, but I think this is true anywhere in the world, is that your mother loves you slightly more. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay, so anyone that's listening to this, that's what you say in a medical school interview. So you just want your mum to love you a bit more, and that's what you're here. <laughs> yeah, I need to tell my niece that. She, so my niece is eight, and she wants to be a pediatrician. And she's very much, that's, a, that's been her decision since she was six, for some reason. I don't even know. She has really bad asthma and has gone to the hospital several times and made friends with her doctor for some reason and learned the big word of being pediatrician and not being like kids doctor. And so she'll come up to me and be like, I want to be a pediatrician. And then she'll go to her teachers and be like, how do I get the best grades? Because I want to be a pediatrician. It mind blows me that she's eight and she gets upset if she gets like anything lower than like a 98 on her exams. She went up to her English teacher the other day and said that she doesn't understand how she has a 98 in the class because she speaks English and she clearly she needs to uh, like be taught more because she wants 100 because people who have 98 don't get into medical school. And I was like, oh, you need to calm down. You're eight. But, like, you know, now it makes sense that you're saying medical school is quite competitive. So it's astounding to me that even a small child is kind of aware just how hard it may be to get into this. And the fact that she's at the young age already thinking about what can I do to make sure I get into medical school. I might just have to give her that advice that I will love her more if she gets into being a doctor if she wants to be. I'm not necessarily sure that's the <laughs> advice you should give anyone psychologically, but you go to a medical school graduation and you just look around and there's, de- I mean, you can definitely measure this, right? The medical students are walking around like proud of themselves. They were, you know, the badge saying, I, like, call me doctor or doctor, whatever. But you genuinely look around, all the parents are like, their chests are right out. They're like marching around, like, <laughs> look at my child. Look what I have produced, right? And so, uh, so there is that going on. Oh, yeah. I also have to say that it's quite amazing, like just how smart you can be from going from someone that loves history to just kind of changing into going into medicine. I also love history, but medicine, math, biology does not click at me at like not even a little bit. Um, so kudos to you. <laughs> I mean, like all of those subjects are rote learning, right? When you get, mm-hmm. for, I mean, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but in the UK, A-levels, this is 20 years ago, was just formulaic, right? You just had to memorize things. And if you can mm-hmm. bring yourself to memorize it, then you, you kind of go through, right? So yeah. you don't have to engage. It's only later on in life you'd start engaging your brain, right? Often at that age, you're, you're just literally just getting through exams as fast as possible, right? So Yeah, probably the same in the US. I was too busy focusing on the history aspect because like you said, it's like a storytelling. So I cared more about that than in geometry. Yeah, exactly. But since you said that it has been like 20 years since you kind of went into the healthcare industry, how would you say it's different now and the differences and it's going to be in the future compared to when you started? So, I mean, I was young, so maybe I was naive, but also I think the industry was relatively naive. But I think that's true of every industry, right? That there's more refinement in everything as as we go forward. And and actually, the world has evolved so much faster. In, in every last decade, we've evolved so much faster than even the previous two decades, if that makes sense. So there's a rapidity of kind of thinking and how we do things. I guess, how's it changed? I mean, in the time I've been a clinician, it's changed just by simply the demands that are being made on people, right? So the demands of being a doctor, so actually trying to get into medicine is so much harder, actually practicing medicine is so much harder, because there's so much more pressure on people. There's a lot of that kind of reality that's facing, but I think that's not strictly just a medical or healthcare thing. I think that's true of every industry. I think the demands on people are just so much greater nowadays. And so there's a lot of pressure that comes with things. I think COVID is quite interesting in one aspect, which is not the actual healthcare specific aspect, but the ability to disaggregate where you work 
from your career. So you could work anywhere and we're forced to start using technology far more effectively. I think is really interesting. I think that could be a real change for all industries, not just in the tech space, but in any industry. I think there's going to be such fundamental changes because we've seen it in healthcare, right? We've seen these fundamental changes that have happened over this very short period of time. Specifically in education, I've seen it massively because of the growth of our company. We were already doing quite well before COVID. But with COVID, where because we were thinking of solutions to problems at a global scale, and we were thinking about how to use technology and how to leverage the things we were doing, we're totally kind of changing like what we're doing. And what's interesting is that there was often in healthcare, there's this big disparity between established and history. So history of organization, how long it's been around, et cetera, et cetera, and new things. And you have to kind of burnish your credentials in order to basically be able to get the credibility to play with the big boys. I have to say that's completely gone out the window because now it's all about how fast can you innovate? What can you do, right? And because of all this stuff around COVID, because you just have to solve the problems. And so, I mean, we did a project a while ago where we were delivering a program for a charity partner. And as a result of that, the WHO contacted us um, like four weeks out from World Health Assembly Week and asked us to help them work on a project with them. And I mean, I just don't think that would have ever happened in like pre in this time, right? And so they needed some an organization that could be think innovatively, solve a problem really fast and deliver really well. And we basically were able to do that. So during World Health Assembly Week, we ran one of the fringe events for them and approached it from an educational perspective. And what was fascinating with that whole experience was the actual World Health Assembly Week itself was like technologically a bit uh, because of various things. But actually, our event went off really well. It was very smooth. And we got lots of feedback from lots of organizations. And the thing that our team was so proud of is that in the middle of the COVID crisis, like our organization was on the front page of the WHO website, right? The event we were running was on the front page, right? And so we were like, we were stoked about that because we were like, oh my God, like this is like the reality of, of doing this. And so I think in lots of ways, we've unfortunately been fortunate. So because of this, but also the industry as a whole is being forced to rethink. And, and there are good and bad examples of this, right? In the, in the health service in the UK, there's an app that the NHS is building. And you know, the NHS has, no matter what anyone says, has unlimited resources, right? Because it's essentially underwritten by the government. And so, you know, they should be able to deliver. And yet there's a real problem with delivery, right? And so there's a question over how that works and why that works and stuff like that. And so I think traditional innovation, the way it was being done in healthcare previously, isn't working very well. And so there is a new generation of young innovators, or in my case, not so young innovators coming through who are doing something different. But most important, Importantly, landing the punches, right? Actually delivering on the mission. And I think that's where I hope healthcare will generally go, is that we focus on delivery and solving the problem for our populations and not simply resting on our laurels and thinking that because we've done it this way for 30 years and because I've got this title and because I'm this, we just do it the same way. And I think that's where I'm hoping healthcare doesn't fall into a trap and just rest back on things that realistically need to be innovatively changed so obviously you've gone into kind of like a lot of the influences a lot of your experience so what's kind of like the the main reason that you decided to start medics academy so I wasn't like a young innovator that came out of medical school right so I was I think I was about 10 
more years into my career. I had a relatively successful clinical career, medical career. The reason I made the switch, and again, a lot of the time in healthcare, what we're seeing right now is a lot of people that are very unhappy in their careers making switches and making changes. Whereas I have to say, I was extremely happy. I absolutely loved my job. And so that wasn't ever the issue. The issue for me was more about I knew that we needed to make a difference. We needed to change something if we're going to ever solve this problem. And the problem that I could see was how are we going to actually deliver like this working population? So what I was looking at was like, how do we solve this? And so I knew that we tried within the jobs I'd done previously to do it, within the industry, within the common thing. And the issues were never innovative thinking, right? I saw innovative thinking around me. I felt I had good ideas for what I could do, but it was just impossible to deliver them within the structure of what we were working in, right? And so I realized very quickly that it was really important to get innovative thinking at the forefront, work out how to solve the problem, and then create all the structures that you need needed to do that. And so the big step for me was not so much whatever the problem was. It was actually thinking of leaving what was a very, very, very safe career path, right? I mean, it was a very safe career path. You don't hear of unemployed doctors, right? And so it was an extremely safe space. And like I had a very, um, as Vinay said at the beginning, I had a very successful career in that space, right? And actually, to do this, I thought, well, I can't do it in the mechanisms that I'm seeing, because there's just so much intransigence, and it's like wading through treacle, that I actually, if I don't go and create a genuinely innovative organisation that can move fast and work out how to solve problems, then we're going to end up, I'm going to spend the next 20 years of my life very unhappy that I haven't solved the problem. I wasn't worried about the position or the title or the money or anything, but I really, really wanted to solve this problem. And so I knew that the only way I could do it was to make this change. And so I am very, very, very fortunate. And I say this every time that I have a wife that is extremely supportive. And so when I said to her, this is what I was going to do, what I said was, I really want to do this thing. And she basically was like, go and do it. Like the one thing I've learned about you is if you don't do what you want to do, like it will be a waste of like, she was really sweet. I mean, she's very supportive. So she was basically said, just go and do it. And so, I mean, I'll tell you how ridiculous it was. I sold our house, our family home to in order to fund the company at the beginning and literally uh, basically pump prime the company and got it off the ground and went for it and literally went full time into it straight away. Did not, you know, I didn't pull my punches. I didn't like think about like transitions and all this kind of stuff. I literally was just like, you know what, I need to do this because if I don't do this, who's going to do this? And if we don't do this properly, then we're going to have a problem. And I can't tinker with this problem. I have to try and get my teeth into it. So yeah, went and did it. And I have to say no regrets. I mean, I think my wife has regrets that she kind of told me to do this, but I have to say I have no regrets, which is the key. So it's amazing. And it's so good that like, it's obviously paid off as well. And I think that there's a lot of people that oh let's go the safe route in life and I think you will always kind of kick yourself for not trying because if you don't try you don't know so um, I have full respect for that. When you're younger I mean I'll, I'll give you one piece of advice that someone told me which is that the more you have the more you have to lose 
right? So when you're younger, you just generally have nothing to lose, right? Because, you know, you have your whole life ahead of you, you've got choices, you can go in any direction. When you're a bit older, I mean, where I was in my life, I mean, I had kids at that point, right? So this was a major risk that I was taking with not just my life, but everyone's around me. And I think when you're older, you have to make those decisions. So actually, for a lot of young people, I would argue, like genuinely project forward to when you're in your 40s or your 50s or later in life, what is it that motivates you? What is it that guides your principles? What is it that you're driving for? And really focus on that. Because if you don't think about that early in life, you will be trapped into decisions later in life that you will sometimes regret. And that is a fundamental problem, right? Because being trapped is the worst place to be because it's the the route to sadness and depression and unhappiness and all the other things, right? So be clear early what you want to achieve and try and, and, and start on the right path for yourself, because I think that's really important. And also don't be in fear. I mean, like most of what I see, the restrictions on most people's lives are in their own head. They're not in the world, right? There's Yes, there's racism, sexism, misogyny, all of that stuff. But the reason why people often don't drive forward is often still in their own head. They have, you know, the fear of losing out or their their imposter syndrome or whatever it is. Whereas if they have a drive and they have a desire to succeed, they can if they are also given the support. And support is important, don't get me wrong. But the first place to start is in your own head. I agree 100%. I think like just based on my personal experience, me and my co-founder, we were both 19 when we started the company and we were meeting CEOs of very large companies at 19 and I could 100% relate to that imposter syndrome where you kind of sit there and you are waiting to meet a CEO and they're like, why am I meeting this kid? And you kind of feel like, okay, why am I here? And can I really deliver what I think I can deliver, et cetera? So I understand. And one of the things that you mentioned was just about obviously advice and actionable points. So just going back to your career, what do you wish you had known when you started out as a doctor? And if I may add a second part to that question, what do you wish you had known when you started Medics Academy as a founder CEO? So one thing I do, I would say is I don't really regret, I don't have any regrets about my career. There's lots of things that, you know, in hindsight, you might do. But the reality is that at the time with information I have, I think the decisions you make are the ones you make, right? Those are the, you've just got to accept those are the decisions. If you, if you always live your life in the, I mean, speaking as a person that loves history, if you live your life living in the past, if you're always regretting decisions you've made, then I think you will end up, that's also quite a surefire way to end up on a poor outcome. So I don't necessarily think about what do I wish I had known or how would I have done things or anything like that. I think the one piece of advice I give everyone, everyone, first of all, the thing about the restrictions on you are in your head. So that one I I tell everyone. But the other thing I say is that if you see someone that is genuinely inspiring, if you see someone at the top of their game, if you see someone that is driving forward on something that you think, wow, I want to be part of that, right? do whatever you can to be right next to them, right? Because so I say to my team all the time, right? I want to be the stupidest person in the room all the time, right? If I'm in a room where I am the stupidest person in that room, if I'm the, the least talented person in that room, if I'm the person with the, the most to learn in that room, then I'm in the right room. Because that means that all of those other people who have probably got way more choices than to be in the room with me are in the same room, right? That means I've got all 
all these people to learn from, all these people to kind of grow from, et cetera, et cetera. And in my role as, as a CEO, I don't want to be the smartest person. If I'm the smartest person in the room, that means that company is surefire dead, right? Because basically you are in a situation where you're relying on yourself every single time and everyone else is just waiting for you to tell them what to do, right? So I need the people around me to be smarter than me. And so I guess... That goes back to this thing. If you see super talented people, if you genuinely care, like, you know, passionate people, and passion is the most important thing, right? Because if they are smart, if they're, you know, they're keen, they're hungry, they're ambitious, et cetera, et cetera, but they lack passion, you know, you just, you don't succeed. So you have to have passion and you have to want to drive forward to improve the world. And if you see someone like that, you better make sure you're standing right next to them. Because when they blow the world up and do something cool, you want to be the one who's sitting there harvesting the manna from heaven, as in, you know, to get the benefit of, of what they're doing, or, or to learn from them, or to, to understand them, or to do whatever it is they're doing. And, you know, I'm open with that. I tell my team all the time, right? I appointed you because you're brilliant, right? And I'm just waiting for you to succeed so that like, we all succeed, right? And so that's what we look for, basically. Yeah, that's impressive. I think what you're saying kind of blows up whatever you may have been learning previously to always be, you know, the best person in the room, to be the smartest one, to be the one that everyone looks up to. At least I feel a lot with my generation and maybe just more where I was raised and grew up is that you wanted to be the best that you could be. You want to be the best of the best. And if not, if someone's better, you want to be better than them. So I actually think it's fascinating to think of it the other way around and a lot more like less pressure on my end to not want to be the best of the best and to learn from the best of the best instead. So I think it'll be very helpful for our listeners to kind of take some of the pressure they have on themselves to be the best person in the room to start thinking about who can I surround myself with and how do I surround myself with people that are passionate and can put me at their level. And when they're growing, <laughs> I'm growing and going forth. And so I really, really like that. And it kind of moves me into my next point. I obviously did some research on you which is a low kind of way of saying that Google stalked you. <laughs> I saw that you created not just Maddox Academy, but something called a, a healthcare leadership academy. And that was fascinating to me because I know you've been talking about education and how um, it's a big thing to you. So I'm curious to learn more about the specific academy and what your mission is behind it and what you want to do with the academy to help everyone else. So this was a passion project. This was like a side project I was doing and it was meant to, so I was building the company. And one of the things that I'd spent a long time in my career doing was to help young people to work out how to get into uh, positions of leadership or authority and how do they grow as a person? Because fundamentally, I believe that you can identify really good talent really early on. When I was at medical school, I could look around and I could see who was going to do something genuine. Like, you know, everyone was going to be a consultant or GP. So everyone was going to get to that senior title at some point in their career but who was going to do that thing that was genuinely like interesting or cool or was going to do something like how do you see them what are they going to do and I genuinely think that you can look around at young people and kind of see what they're going to do and what they often need is just more support like to take away the imposter syndrome give them confidence drive them forward in their success story right and so that was like a side passion of mine a passion that I really liked working with young people and working with young clinicians and so it's either not-for-profit, it's a social enterprise. So we based it in London and we, it was literally like that kind of uh, innovator's dilemma thing, right? So you, I put up a website. So I, I mean, I say I, me and two of my friends or two of the colleagues in the company put up a website on a Friday and launched it on the Tuesday. And we literally just literally put it up and said, we're opening this program up to 
anyone that wants to apply free at the point of entry you come and you're going to be mentored and, and taken through for a um, on a leadership program for the next nine months right and that's what we did it was like successful in in the microcosm right so within the world like it didn't like have a billion views or it doesn't have the story that hotmail has where like 250 million people clicked on the on the little line underneath in like 10 minutes or something but it was successful within the microcosm so it wasn't the numbers we were looking for it was the quality right can we attract people that are super, super talented at an early stage and see what they do? And we were so lucky. I mean, we were so lucky. We hit the absolute gold mine in that first cohort, right, of young people that were genuinely impressive young people. So the first person that applied to this program, he ranked number one when he qualified out of medical school in the UK. So he was the number one graduate, not just like in the 1%, he was the number one graduate of the UK medical schools in his year, right? Uh, because they have a ranking system that we kind of initiated. And so these are basically, like we were able to attract some of the most talented young people and they were super smart, right? And we took them through this program and we kind of supported them. We took away a lot of the imposter syndrome. We put them in front of really interesting people. We taught them lots of things and, and it was really cool. And we got, like the feedback was phenomenal. It was like, great. However, I looked at it and I was like, so unhappy with the program, right? And I was just like, yes, everyone loves the program and everyone said, but actually this isn't the mission. The mission is to try and make these people super, like give them the opportunities and, and work out how can they change health systems, right? And so I completely revamped the system in year two and suddenly this program just blew up, right? It went from just these 13 young people in London to going all over. And, and part of that was entirely to do with a fortunate relationship I had where a friend of mine, so someone who I'd worked with professionally, a colleague, about eight years earlier, yeah, eight years earlier, she was in a very senior position in health education England, someone called Namita Kumar. And she approached me and she said, look, I've seen what you're doing with this leadership stuff. And there's nothing like this in the system. And, and she's got a very senior responsible role within the system. And she said, look, I'd really actually quite like to see how you would do something more fundamental with it. What would you do with, can you bring it to my region, which is in Newcastle, and set it up in Newcastle, rather than running it just in London? Because London has all these kind of programs and everything. So can we just run it in Newcastle? And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, I don't mind. So I literally took it all over to, to Newcastle. We ran two cohorts, one in London, one in Newcastle. And it was like an eye-opening thing for us. It was like, she was the one who encouraged us to do it, but we went and did it. And it just went crazy from there. And so we ended up like with cohorts now, we've got them all over the UK. We've got them in Amsterdam. We are kind of moving across Europe. People are applying for all over Europe to join this program. And we are attracting like literally the cream of the cream in healthcare. So not just doctors, but nurses and physios and, and all the different professions, but literally the top people um, who are young people, really competitive, they are getting in and then we are giving them a platform to learn how to lead health systems. So how do you actually become the future chief medical officer or the future president of a Royal College or the future health minister of your country? What would it take to do that? And we build it on six pillars, which I devised with a colleague of mine called Ali, who is like one another brain I surrounded myself with. And basically, he is like this unbelievably smart young guy. And we built this system where we have these pillars, right? Six pillars of leadership. So the leader is an innovator and entrepreneur, the leader is a manager, the leader is a philosopher, the leader is a follower, the leader is a communicator, and leader is a negotiator.
And so basically, we built it on these six pillars with the idea that you can effectively come up with a, this is the thing that will make you a successful clinical leader. And actually, it ended up really effective. And so what we then did was we were really happy to see this kind of grow. And the organization has now grown massively. But the other thing was we kind of mirrored our own innovation. So we underpinned it with Medics Academy. So Medics Academy went in, our team at Medics Academy went in and worked out how to build a scaled program for this passion project, right? So how do we build all of the technology architecture, the infrastructure, the logistics thinking, the the kind of all of that stuff that is required, process mapping, everything that you need to build from scratch a global education institution. And that was our project. And so we learned very quickly how to do it because we were having to do it for ourselves. And we scaled it up into what it is. And so that's why also I'm very confident in our team in Medics Academy because we did it. And that's often why organizations approach us because when they want to get genuinely a project successful, well, we've got case study after case study after case study of where we've been able to do that very, very rapidly, right? So we've built it from a standing start as just a website to a global institution or certainly a pan-European institution very quickly. That's amazing. And since we're obviously talking about the the mission behind the academy, and of course we all especially now know how, how hard it is to get into med school, what practical steps can someone listening to this take to give themselves the best possible chance of getting an offer, obviously, in addition to working hard to their academics? I would say that it's hard, mainly because you have to apply yourself, right? So it's not hard because it's technically hard. It's hard because you have to jump through an unbelievable number of hoops. And to be fair, this was true 20 years ago, right? Like to be a doctor, it does not take you to be smart. I I know everyone thinks doctors are smart. To be a doctor is not a question of intelligence, right? To be a doctor literally is a question of just application. Are you willing to spend the time to learn the subject and to understand the the material? Because there's an enormous amount of material that you have to learn. But the other point is you just have to be nice, right? I mean, basically, one of the key factors of being a clinician is just being able to communicate with your patients, right? And if you cannot talk to people, like, you really should not be doing medicine, right? Because, like, it is such a fundamental part of being a doctor is being able to talk and communicate. And and this is true, not just in medicine, nursing, any health professional, you absolutely need to be able to talk to people, right? And so that's the bit I would like be absolutely clear on is that do you want to spend your life being nice to people? Sometimes when you don't want to be nice to them like you I've seen you know you have situations where people are racist sexist misogynistic you know they're angry they're drunk you know there's interesting odors that you have to deal with there's interesting uh fluids that you have to deal with so you know can you still stand in the room with all of that going on is a question and if you can't then maybe it's not the career for you so that's I think the first thing but what do you do to get into medical school I mean I guess or to any health school you know whether it's nursing or whatever I think the main thing is just first of all be sure that you want to do it I mean you know given what I said maybe this is a bit kind of hypocritical but do it for the right reasons like don't do it for the same reasons I did because actually you have to be passionate if you're a person that becomes passionate about the thing you're doing and you can maintain that passion fine but the majority of people are passionate about something and they should follow the path of being passionate about what they're passionate about and I think for me what I what I would say to young people is be really sure you want to do it it is not a career that's you're not going to be really wealthy you'll be pretty 
well off. Don't get me wrong. So doctors are, are relatively well paid. Even you know, in in the in the UK and the US, even other kind of health professions are relatively well rewarded, comparative to other professions. But then it isn't the financial, it's the general, the well-being. You become in society someone that people respect. The only problem is actually when society itself, when often your employer or your or the government or whatever doesn't take it seriously. So we <laughs> see that quite a lot where suddenly because healthcare is so politicised, people don't like you know, powerful doctors or whatever coming off and telling them that politicians are not doing their job properly, as we see in the US right now, where the politician doesn't necessarily like the reality of what the clinician is saying to them. And I think that's the only real, the major sticking point. We see that in the UK. I mean, we, I mean, when I've been involved with medical leadership and politics, that's often been the problem. More than anything, it's that the politician doesn't like what they're hearing rather than anything else. So I would, I would say that Make sure you pick it for the right reason, go into it for the right headspace, and also be really passionate about the subject because it's so interesting. I mean, it's so interesting. Yeah. Medicine is so interesting. I mean, there's that, obviously, you've delved into like that on a broad spectrum, but what about with you? Like, obviously, at Medics Academy, what can someone do to really impress you when they apply for a role? So I have to say, Vinay and Niran send me CVs every now and then, right? And I tend to not read CVs, or at least I look at them and then I don't really, like, I want to actually see the person. I want to talk to the person, right? Because I am basically a person that's, fr- I don't know where this term translates, but I'm a front-loaded person, right? When you meet me, I usually get most jobs or whatever I've ever applied for. I mean, there are lots of times I've failed, but don't get me wrong. But I, I generally can present myself very well. Therefore, I am extremely suspicious of anyone that presents themselves very well, right? Because I genuinely wonder, like, can this person really do what they're saying on this piece of paper? And so I'm more interested in like delivery. So if you have hundreds of titles, and and in medicine, we see this all the time, right? People have like job title, job title, job title. Like I was on this committee, I was on that committee. Like that to me is an immediate red flag, right? If there's loads of these titles, right? What I want to know is in this job, what did you do? Right. So if I have a job title and in that job, you lasted in the job, first of all, for a period of time, you did it for like two, three years. And I did this in year one and I developed it into this in year two. And this is what I've done at the end. That to me is cool. Right. Because basically you're demonstrating passion, you're demonstrating commitment. And more importantly, as much as your mum says that effort is more important than attainment, you're demonstrating attainment. Right. So you're working your way through the kind of thing. And, And I think it goes back. I mean, the person I always thought this way, but the person that really crystallized this way of thinking was Angela Duckworth wrote a book called Grit, which I think is an absolute must read for any parent. But grit, and I mean any employer as well, but certainly any parent, because Harvard and, and West Point and lots of institutions change their entire recruitment processes based on the this book, basically. And I would absolutely read that book because it is a fundamental thing about what it takes to demonstrate, like, what does success look like? And it looks like people that persist in the face of adversity that can demonstrate at least at some point that they will go through the valley of despair. If anyone's ever seen the valley of despair kind of graph that you see in innovation, you go through the valley of despair and you get to the other side and you learn from your lessons. And I think that's an important lesson to learn, basically. You touched upon one of the points that it's something that I do emphasize to a lot of students. It's not about the actual title, it's actually what you do in that role. And you could work for like the biggest brand name, but you could be 
photocopying and grabbing coffee all day, or you could work for a slightly small company, um, work your ass off and essentially build up really good quality experience. And I'm glad that you touched upon that. We'll actually come back to the point about books and things to read up on as well. So that's an interesting question to come back to in a second. But I think Lucy has a question for you. I just want to say that actually one of the points I was I was I wrote down I wanted to make today was that it's interesting because and I think I said this to Niran the other day. In our company, we have a headcount. So we've got a wider team of a couple of hundred clinicians, but we've got a headcount, core headcount of about 20, right? And of those 20, five came through capital placement currently, right? So five came through your organization. And what was interesting with them was that they're all done an internship, but they've like in their internship, they have just got super sucked into the crazy world we live in. Like, you know, I, I talk about all this stuff and they get sucked in and they want to like do this stuff. And they've then persisted in their role afterwards. And, and in I think the longest case is about two and a half years now they've been with us. And so literally they've persisted and they've like gone on to take on senior roles within the company and stuff like that. And the issue I find is that often you guys give me these CVs, but what I really listen to is whenever Niran says to me, I've got this person and actually I talk to them and they are quite interesting. You should probably talk to this person. And I was like, okay, cool. So then I look at the CV because I know Niran sends it to me and I'm like, yeah, okay, I should look, look at this thing. But then I basically talk to them and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see this. This is a person that is interesting. You know, they care and whatever. And and then we give them a task. And I don't really massively care about whether they know how to do the task. I care whether they turn the task around really quickly, right? So have they got the motivation to just do the task, right? Which is a crazily basic filter of success, right? If someone can't even do a simple task when you ask them to do it, like that is a massive filter to tell you that red flag, red flag, red flag, right? And so, you know, I have to say, I think, you know, and you do find in business, the most important thing is you trust certain people's opinion and you start trusting them more and more as you work more and more with them. And when someone says to you, talk to this person, you know, they're quite interesting. I have to say, I find that a good marker of, yeah, I should probably listen and find out a bit more about this person. So that's really like interesting, obviously talking about people's like growth journey. Um, and obviously we work with so many students and graduates who are really at the beginning of of that journey and constantly have lots of things to learn. But what about you? You know, how obviously you're so established in your career, but how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? Okay, so I tend to listen to a lot of audiobooks. I audible is like a massively big thing in my life. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I tend to listen to a lot of books related to the problems I'm currently facing. So problems around strategy or HR or how do I solve an engineering problem or whatever. And it's not so much the detail part, because you can find the detail anywhere on the internet, right? But it's often the how do you approach the strategic decision making? And so, again, I find the subject interesting enough that I spend my time basically just listening to stuff and reading stuff and being interested in the subject matter. And I think I would strongly advise someone that if they go into a career where they can't envision a sense where they're doing the thing that they're doing out of choice. So they're not like they won't go and do the extra reading you need to do to develop what you're doing in your own time. If you don't feel passionate in that way, I think genuinely look at what you're doing, like be clear why you're doing it, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Because I think to be really, really, really at the top of your game, like Julia kind of mentioned before, I think you really want to 
always be striving to kind of learn more and to absorb more information and try and understand more about what you're trying to achieve. And that comes not from like just being so solidly determined and um, regimented and you know about what you're doing it comes from genuinely caring about the subject matter so I would say that is really important so basically if I was if I was any young person coming through find the subject they're really passionate about and 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 explore it Um, and as you're doing something use your driving passion to kind of explore further and further and further and certainly that would be how I would approach it. And that's how I approach my own development and my own learning. I spend a lot of time just understanding things, reading things. Yeah, that kind of thing. And, and when you find a thing you really enjoy. So one of our business things kind of found this fascinating, right? But part of our mission is to deliver technology-based learning. So how do we give the user going through a learning experience ever more interesting things to do, right? And interesting ways to absorb information. One of the things that I genuinely, I know this sounds ridiculous when you say this, right? But I found that I needed to learn about was how do you deliver multimedia training? How would you deliver multimedia training? And the reality is that in order to deliver multimedia training, the best place to start is what is the best that's going on in multimedia. So part of what, what I was doing at, at one point in the in the thing was I was sitting watching Netflix and watching headsets like these VR headsets and playing around with like kind of Oculuses and stuff like that, right? And I'm still doing that because I'm still fascinated by how they work and like what the user experience is of Netflix and how that and how do you translate that more into an education setup because otherwise it's very stale and boring whereas Netflix has solved loads of these problems and I remember saying to one of our team oh I've got to get this Netflix subscription I think it was to our accountant I'm going to get this Netflix subscription and they were like there is no way you can justify claiming Netflix right and I was like but I'm actually doing it for work, right? I'm actually, and she was used point blank to believe that Netflix was actually something I was doing for work, right? And I was just like, like honestly, I have to work out how this... And she kind of like listened to me talking about it. I was just like, in the end, she was like, okay, yeah, maybe this is... I'm pretty sure you're telling me a line, but I don't know for sure. And I was like, and I was sitting there going, I actually do. I'm actually like literally like looking at it and thinking about notes of how to do this. And she was just like, yeah, this is just ridiculous. This is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. Going back potentially a few years as a medical student or even a recent graduate that's just finished medical school, what are some of the best resources that can help them with their career? So is there any particular books or resources that kind of help you transition from a student to a doctor? Well, I mean, we basically cover the transition period from being a medical student to being a doctor. And that's one of our core products. So the best thing I can suggest to you is come and register with Medics Academy and sign up (laughs) and we will help you transition, right? So that's one of our most popular products is how do you transition, essentially. So yeah, I mean, that's the obvious one. But I think in terms of just generally, in terms of professional talking to other people that have gone through it, like understanding it. And when they tell you that they did Medics Academy as well, that's good. We, we like that. Like, that's a good thing as well. Um, but basically talking to other people, like finding out from other, like the previous generation is a good thing. Generally, don't try and reinvent the wheel. I see this nowadays. I get a lot of like young people that want to do entrepreneurial things as well. And I often tell them, you know, like don't reinvent the wheel. Like if there is a way of doing something that can be done, like why don't you just go and use it? Like you're not going to like 
genuinely are you ever going to try and build your own Gmail, right? Is, you know, what, what if you're a company and you're starting out, would you ever build <laughs> Gmail yourself? Like to just to send emails to each other? No, because it's so stupid, right? So in general, if someone's doing something really well, build on top of what they're doing. Don't try and reinvent something, right? And so I guess that's it. So, you know, find out what worked, find out how people made the transition effectively, find out what tools they use, and don't be shy about asking is the other thing. I mean, like a lot of people, they feel weird about asking things or, or stuff like that. I mean, I wouldn't. I would just drop people a message and say, I want to do this. What do I do about this? You're listening to the Career Growth Podcast. Do you have a question for one of our hosts? Send us an email at thecgpodcast at capital-placement.com. Something that happened in the UK a while ago, there was a junior doctor's strike in the campaign. So I was running the negotiations on that. And uh, this photography company got picked up in the middle of that as like, why? You know, I got asked about it on Newsnight, uh, which, was, uh, which I found absolutely mind-blowing that someone would spend six minutes of a Newsnight interview actually asking you about that, of all things, of all the things to ask questions about. That was the thing. But anyway... Like in Medics Academy, it's all about imaging and, and video, and we use all these different techniques, audio and all this stuff, right? And so I was always fascinated by imaging, but I cannot draw and I cannot paint, and I do not have the, the headspace to sit and learn how to paint, right? Which I think you can do if you don't have enough time, but I think it, it, it's not just a talent thing. I think you actually can teach yourself to do virtually anything if you have enough time and willingness to le- sit down and learn, whereas I don't. So I basically, what I loved imaging. Images. And I w- wanted to be artistic and I loved the idea of composition and art and all this stuff. And actually, photography is like this unbelievably easy thing to do, right? Because you can literally pick up a camera and claim you're a photographer. And the cool thing is that I'm into tech, right? So I love tech things. And so the idea of buying a widgety camera that has lots of buttons and does lots of cool things and, and through those buttons and software and all this stuff, like it was like Nirvana, right? You build, you Build, pick up a camera, you can buy these like super cool SLRs that are heavy and metal and, you know, they've got big lenses on them and you wander around with them and stuff. And you can take photos and then you can do all this stuff with software that is like crazy. And uh, it genuinely, I loved all that, right? So I was like, okay, this is cool. And I thought, well, I, I want to get more into this. But one of the things I knew, and this was really coming to the point where I was starting to have that understanding about I could not do what I was going to do within the system of healthcare, is that I knew I needed to learn some business skills. Like you are not trained in financial literacy as a doctor. You are just, it's just one of the kind of big gaping black holes of a lack of the system, no understanding how to train young clinicians, right? And so I knew I needed to learn how to do some basic business skills. And so I was really interested in photography. I was really interested in understanding because I knew this would be where my career was going. And I didn't really want to mess it up in medicine, right? Because medicine is like all reputational. It matters who you are and like what if you do, you know, if you make a big failure in like in medicine, then it's, it can be a, so I didn't want to do that. So I basically thought, well, actually I love photography. and I want to learn a business. Why don't I just start a photography company, right? Clearly, that was the obvious answer to this problem. And basically, I thought, right, I'm going to start this photography company, and I'm going to use the photography company as a way of learning how to run a business. And that's what I did. So I basically started this photography company, and it was brilliant because the added advantage, much like the Netflix problem, is that because I run a photography company, I get to buy all of the coolest photographic (laughs) equipment ever, right? So I got to buy, like, these massive cameras. And, like, my wife is like, 
why are you buying this camera? And I'm like, it's part of the business. And she's like, hold on, this is not part of the business. Like, you are never going to earn enough money to pay for that camera. And I was like, well, if I don't have the camera, how am I going to earn the money, right? So I need the camera. And so basically, we'd have this kind of ongoing discussion about these cameras. And I'd buy these ridiculous cameras that I clearly do not have the ability to use or like need because I am like this non-entity photographer. And so I was like, okay, right. So I'm going to, so I bought all these cameras and they were so cool. Honestly, genuinely like big cameras are cool. Right. And so you get to play around with them and you like, they do all these functions and they, all the lenses, right. It's very pretty. Anyway, so I started the company and I ran it for a while. And actually what, what I learned about business through that company was awesome, right? Because you learned that actually business is entirely about relationships. Like my ability to deliver photographs. I mean, I, was, I wasn't bad. I wasn't like terrible. I was quite good as a photographer. Because I could, like, I, my wife always said I spent more time revising to learn how to do photography than I did for my final medical school exam, right? So I literally was up till four o'clock in the morning for like six months on YouTube, learning everything there was to learn about lighting and imaging and composition. And I mean, YouTube is great for that, right? And so basically, I learned everything. And so I, I ran this company. And, and actually, I ran, I did some quite high impact events. So corporate events, weddings, like literally, the whole lot and I did them professionally and I used to tell people you know I really wouldn't hire me because I'm really weirdly expensive compared to like the, my experience and they were like so why should we hire you and I was like well because I'm basically trying to pay down my camera bill because my wife is telling me I have to make this commercially viable and so they were like okay well we know you so yeah it's fine it's better we hire you than someone we don't know and then I learned the lesson that actually business is business right people know each other and they kind of want to you know you want trust and all this kind of stuff so I learned all that and so I learned a lot of stuff about running a business in that in that in that role and it was really cool man of many talents Johan, a doctor a photographer a... i mean literally a photographer is like picking up a camera <laughs> and taking a picture right it's not let's not go like nowadays i mean i even now i say to people you don't actually need a big camera anymore because these iphones right are literally amazing i mean what you can do on an iphone is genuinely mind-blowing right because like iphones come built in with like garage band and iMovie, right plus the editing software built into a to an iphone it's like crazy what you can do with these things so you you don't need a camera anymore like an iphone does it to kind of follow up on that how important is it in your opinion to do something completely different from your day job because i can imagine being a doctor is fairly stressful and long hours etc so in addition to that would you recommend someone in a who is kind of going through a very stressful period whether work-wise university-wise to have something completely different so that they can just switch off even though it takes up more time in their day rather yeah, I mean, I think it's important, isn't it, that you always have your way of switching. I mean, what that is, whether it's a hobby or just watching Netflix and claiming that you're doing some research or whatever it is you're going to do, you know, I think it's important to switch off. But I, I mean, I think that's just kind of a natural human way of dealing with the stresses and coping with the stresses of life. And I think that is important. You need to work out what is it that's stressful about what you're doing. I think that's important. So if you just keep switching off in order to not deal with the underlying issue of why it's stressing you out, I think that's something else to think about. Um, and often people are told, oh, go and find a hobby or go and find this or go and do that in order to take away from the ridiculously stressful thing they're thinking about. Whereas one of the things I would I would say is also just think about why it's stressful. Like, is it stressful for like a reason that is worth stressing over? Obstetrics is another one where you think about this, right? 
I used to say to clinicians that if you want to be an obstetrician, that you have to cope with stress, right? Because obstetrics is like a super stressful environment, right? That you are making life and, and genuinely, like doctors always talk about life and death decisions, but the vast majority of doctors don't make any life and death decisions. Like, whereas an obstetrician is actually making a life and death decision, right? Like if you don't do something in the moment, it can have a really adverse outcome on that baby or that mother. And so you have very short timeframes to make the decision and enact the decision and do something about it, right? Now, if if you don't want to deal with that kind of stress, definitely don't go into obstetrics, right? I mean, that is not the career for you, right? If you can't handle that kind of stress, don't go into obstetrics. If you can't work under that kind of pressure, don't go into obstetrics. To be honest, that was the one thing I fell in love with about the specialties, that my decision-making became so important to the outcome of my career that basically I had to refine my model of decision-making so that it was refined and refined and refined so that I could take in information as I needed to, synthesize and, and take that information in and rapidly make decisions that were meaningful and, and had consequences and then enact the outcome of that decision myself or with my team and I think that was the thing that most excited me about the about the specialty as I reflected on it as I got older and so I think you know one of the things in, in life in general is if you don't like it don't do it because you'll be bad at it one of the things I, I have to say that I tweeted about it this week, actually, is that someone asked about what would be the thing that you would include in an undergraduate medical program that's not already covered. And I have to say that is it, financial literacy. Yeah. I mean, I think I meet so many people and not just young people, like people that are just not financially literate. And I think that is like one of the biggest failures of society is not to teach people the mm. fundamentals of how to manage resources, not just money, but resources in general, right? And I think it's such a, a core requirement of any person living nowadays that, you know, in lots of societies, we can't rely anymore on society looking after you because that's apparently not the way the world goes these days. And so, you you know, being able to be financially literate, I think it's just so important. And I think there's so much we miss with not teaching people yeah, that. I completely agree. I agree. Like, you know, you should get taught how to file a tax in high school because you, that's something you have to do. But what's the point of learning trigonometry when 99.9% .9 of the students studying it will not use it? All the other things that you get taught during GCSE maths, well, why don't you get taught? Dine, do you yeah. play pool? I, I do. And so I therefore know you saying. need I trigonometry, know. right? Like, don't have a go at <laughs> trigonometry, right? You play super pool, you got to learn trigonometry. I got a response to that. Not everybody pays pool, plays pool, but a lot of people do end up paying tax. And so they got to know how to file their tax return. Yeah. So if you look at the percentages, you know, like getting a mortgage, as an example, you know, almost everyone hopefully one day get a mortgage in their life. But understanding what that process looks like, what's required, et cetera, and how a mortgage works, you don't get taught that in school. It's so a lot of things that, you know, I, I suppose life skills, of which I suppose financial literacy comes under, don't get taught in school. And a lot of people leave school when they're 16 and don't potentially go to university where they learn a lot of these life lessons as well, which they should get taught in school. And I think that is, as you said, one of the things that the government should seriously consider, including in high school. You know, we get taught how to cook in high school. A lot of people between year seven and nine in this country get taught how to cook. But just like cooking, you've got to do your taxes. You've got to get a mortgage. You've got to figure out how paying rent on time works, how even credit scores, isn't it? It's such a big part of your life, which 
most people don't realize, but they don't get taught the importance of credit score, how to maintain it, etc. And these are things that a government should seriously take into account when they're redesigning a school curriculum. So I 100% agree with you, Johan, and financial literacy is so important. It just comes down to like, even from a personal perspective, rather than just like running an organization, but personal finances as well, something that people should get taught. I think you're right. The soft skills are so much more. I mean, like I have staff that work for me. The soft skills are so important, like understanding how important how resources are managed and deployed is really important. But also just the skill of being able to work in a team, right? Everyone always talks about it. Like you always see these white box questions on application forms about give your experience of working in a team. And you give a kind of fairly superficial answer to it. But actually, it's like such a major issue. Like there was a statistic I read once about, and I don't know how how accurate it is, but when you start a new business, something like 70 to 80% of the reason why new businesses fail Right. And and remember, like 80 or 90 percent of businesses fail in the first whatever, three or five years. About 78 percent of reasons why a new business fails is because of interpersonal relationships. Right. Is because the people starting the business, for whatever reason, fall out or they have like problems between themselves or they don't they're not financially literate and don't manage the. But then they, it causes stress or whatever. You know, whatever the issue is, it's soft skills that are so important. And I think for some reason, we just don't teach our kids this, right? And, and and not only our kids, but like you go to university and we're not taught this. And then you go to, like you start in work and you're not taught this. And suddenly it's much later on in the cycle when people are promoted for having soft skill skill, and yet no one's ever taught them to sit down and actually work out what those soft skills are. So, I, you know, I think that's really important. And I think, you know, that's why doing internships can be really important as well, because we spend a lot of time with the interns. The beginning of the intern is all the period at the beginning of an internship has nothing to do with them delivering anything for the company. It's often us just learning about them and can they work in a team and are they effective in that team and how do we put them in the right team for them to be performers, right? And that's one of the big things we do at the beginning. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right. Financial literacy and soft skills. Yeah, so we do get a lot of kind of listeners or just students and graduates who come to us just asking for general advice what to do in their particular situation. So we wanted to just ask this question to you before we go. Uh, Hello, I'm currently my second year at university and I'm studying medicine. However, I'm really interested in the healthcare industry and want to eventually create my own business in the field. I had initially planned to do this after finishing my degree and getting some experience under my belt. However, I'm becoming more and more eager to kind of start my own company. So I am at a a bit of a crossroads. Should I leave school and just create my company in the healthcare industry as I'm very eager to get started? But will it be a problem that I didn't finish my degree? Or should I just go forward with my plan to finish and create my business after getting some experience in this field? When's the best time to do it? Is it worth getting some experience in the industry and coming back to start my own business? Or is it best to start early on? What are the advantages and disadvantages, especially in the medical industry? Thanks for all of your advice in advance. So it's a lot in one, because having a, a big dilemma here. I have to say that this is the kind of question I get asked a lot recently because of the mm-hmm. HLA, because we get attract all these people that have these ideas, right? And so one of the outcomes of this very question being posed to me so much is that we started, a, a, we think it's the first one in Europe that we've seen, a health incubator for not-for-profits, right? So for social enterprises, charities and not-for-profits, we started something called HLA Ideas, which helps young people get 
not-for-profit ideas going. And, and unlike for-profit programs, the program actually runs for about two years, right? So you come into the program and you're with us for about two years because it takes so long to get a social enterprise or not-for-profit or a charity off the ground because you don't have like massive investment and you can't just go out and pay for this and pay for that, right? You have to usually work hard at making it successful. And so that's one of the things that literally this question, which I've been asked several times, came out of was like, how do you get that kind of understanding? Now, for this person, I have to say, the decision to leave university or not leave university, I mean, there are examples of both that are successful, right? The classic Mark Zuckerberg question compared to someone else that persisted in university and got the qualification and then came out, I think is is pertinent. The one thing I would say is healthcare, like I say, if you're at medical school, you have got a golden ticket in life, right? If you get to the end of medical school, if you qualify out of medical school, you are basically, and I know this sounds like almost terrible saying this, but you are virtually guaranteed in the UK to have a 100k a year job. Right? Because everyone at some point will eventually become a GP or a consultant. Virtually everyone does, right? Or you have the opportunity to. It's not, you might not get there, but that usually is your own choice because virtually everyone can become a GP or a consultant in some field. Because remember, there are 56 different fields in medicine. So it's a major thing to give up medical school without qualifying for medical school, right? So that's the first thing I would say. But that's not necessarily saying that it's the wrong thing to do. So a good example of this in medicine is, uh, uh, do you know the rapper Sean Paul or someone? He was at Bart's when I was at Bart's. I mean, much younger Jay Sean, that was it. Right. So yeah. he gave up. He gave up medical school when I was like. I mean, he was several years younger than me. But he, you know, he gave up and went off and did his career. But that's a very. There are lots of examples of people who've given up medical school to go off and do interesting things, and that's cool, right? But it is just a big decision to make, right? And so I think you've just got to make the right decision for you. If you are basically giving up medical school to go back into health and become a health tech entrepreneur, I think that is a terrible idea, right? Because if you have the professional experience and credibility in the field, if you can say, I'm a doctor, or I'm a nurse, or I'm a physio, or I'm a whatever, dentist, you've got that professional credibility, and you want to do something in health tech as a business, then I think you are in so much stronger a position if you have a qualification in a health field, and you can speak to other clinicians on the basis of being clinically experienced. Now, when you should leave, that doesn't mean you have to go all the way through to being a GP or consultant or whatever. In fact, there is an optimal time to leave, which which is relatively early in a clinical career. So I actually left at the wrong time if I wanted to be an entrepreneur. If my fixation was just being an entrepreneur and making money in healthcare, then actually I should have left 10 years before, because the optimal time to leave in that time is usually within the first two or three years after university, where you've get that experience, you know, you don't spend too long going down a path, and then you're basically stuck, you've got maybe family commitments, children, etc, etc. But you also, you're in a career path where you've gone up the salary scale a bit. So you can't make that transition without taking quite a significant cut and all that stuff. So there is an optimal time to do the transition, but it isn't I would say, leaving during medical school. Because I think if you want to be a health tech entrepreneur, get your health tech 
kind of experience and be able to say, I am a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a physio, I'm whatever, it doesn't really matter, but I am a health professional. So therefore, I know what it's like to deliver patient care to patients. And therefore, from that experience, that seed of experience, I can then build whatever it is I want to go away and build. So thank you, Johan, for taking the time. Yeah, Thanks, thank everyone. you. So that would do it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast if you're looking to get some advice on your career, on actual tips you can take, um, and anything to really kind of help you understand your industry a bit more. Um, So until then, we'll see you next time, everyone. Bye. That's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave a review and subscribe. Do you know someone who is ready to launch out and get started on their career? Share this podcast. You can connect with us more on social media at the Career Growth Podcast. See you in the next episode.